This episode is also a video interview. So please check out youtube.com slash Eric Hunley. And while you're there, please note that I have a live stream going. And this week will be the return of the behavior panel, which includes Chase Hughes, Scott Rouse, Mark Bowden, and Greg Hartley all of whom have been interviewed for the show and are top-of-their-game body language experts. Please join the live stream. You get to ask your own question. Today's guest is Dr. Dan Hill. And Dan Hill reads faces and has patents on software that does this as well. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today we're joined by Dan Hill, who's a PhD, and he is an expert in reading body language. And from what I understand, you'll have to correct me if I get it wrong, but you've developed a software that helps actually read and interpret facial expressions and body language. Uh, no, not so much. There are efforts underway to automate facial coding, uh, but I still do the work manually because if you go through and you study it expression by expression and slow motion, uh, you can do a much better job. So as far as I've gone down the automation route is I have something called a facial action coding studio. It allows me to slow motion, freeze frame, replay the video 30 frames per second. So I can very precisely look at what's happening and then I can hit the right, you know, keypad, uh, you know, button to say, okay, it was this expression versus that expression. Uh, it'll keep track of it for me when it happened, which one it was. It knows which emotions that expression correlates to, and it runs a scoring system that I developed and have a patent for. Okay, so but you're actually you're driving it. So I'm not going to say. AI or something. So is it like a, a radiologist when they're looking at something and maybe they have a uh, a computer that can narrow in on spots and then they go, oh, zoom in on that. Let me look at that and pick a spot. I very sure. No, no, very much so. And in fact, also like radiologists, the more you do it, if you have any talent for it, the better you're going to get. So the reason I was pro I'm probably a facial coder in part autobiographically is my family moved to Italy when I was six years old. Mm -hmm. I went to Italian first grade in a fishing village. I did not know Italian at first. I had to read the nonverbals. Fortunately, Italians have a lot of them. And so I mm -hmm. largely spent my day looking at how people reacting. The next thing that happened to me is my mom happened to be an interior designer. We go mm -hmm. to Am Amsterdam on the way home to the U.S. after our two years. We stop at the Rijksmuseum and I fall in love with Rembrandt basically on the spot. Rembrandt, of course, is celebrated for being great at capturing people's expressions. And uh, I think that was the one-two punch that kind of set this up for where I was going to eventually go in life, though it took a while. Very interesting. Have you heard of Joe Navarro? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah. Okay. He's FBI agent and considered yep. probably one of the leading, leading, leading experts in the uh, field of body language. He was a Cuban who moved here to America and didn't speak English to start. So he had to learn how to read expressions and that was sort of his beginning. So yeah, he, no, I, I think anytime you're an outsider and you have to step in, it might be a language barrier, cultural differences. I just think it makes you more alert to your surroundings. I think women are often great at noticing their surroundings. There's a wonderful stanza from a poem by Wallace Stevens who said, a duchess is not a duchess a hundred yards from the carriage. Women understand this. 
In other words, women mm. maybe being a little more physically vulnerable have to be mm. very aware of their context and what's safe and not safe. And yes, the Duchess, too far from the carriage, no longer has the power and the privilege that comes with being a Duchess. She's now just a person and vulnerable like everybody else. So yes, I, I think it works. I do know about Joe's work. Uh, this is used in national security issues, FBI, the CIA. Uh, in fact, I was at... Uh, I was going to be giving a speech in Beijing some years ago. It was at the Great Wall. Uh, I'm talking to someone. He says, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a market researcher. He looked really bored. I, I know I know this because I'm a facial coder. I said, well, it's a bit more interesting than that. I'm a facial coder. And he goes, oh, micro-expressions. And I said, well, that's not exactly a household term, that being micro-expression being a really quick expression that flits across the face. And I said, so mm -hmm. now you have to tell me what you do for a living. And he said, well, officially, I work for Halliburton. He said, actually, <laughs> I'm, the under, I'm the substation chief of the CIA in Saudi Arabia, and I've used the tool for 15 years for interrogation and surveillance purposes. So uh, we broke out from the group for about an hour and had a really interesting conversation about things you won't find in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I, I'm very into body language and influence and persuasion. They all kind of roll together in my mind. Yeah, because, well, I mean, why do you read body language? Well, you have to do something with it. I mean, if they're <laughs> angry with you, you're going to probably change the way you're reacting or if they're happy or if you're trying to interrogate or find that information. So I think that body language is just one of a piece or one spoke on a wheel. Yeah, it gives you a tool in a situation. There's a wonderful study from UCLA. They said there are ambiguous situations in life. It could be a, a sales meeting, being hired for a job, uh, being on a first date, God knows what. They said in those situations, they believe that the true communication was 55% from the face, 38% from the voice, and merely 7% from the words. So if you want an Arabian yeah. study, and that's actually yes, pretty – um, that has been misinterpreted in a lot of ways. So can we visit on that a little bit to make sure that we get it right? Sure. Because sure. a lot of people will say that, oh, well, that yeah, if you look at communication, that's such and such as nonverbal and the words don't matter. And it's like, oh, really? Well, then uh, go ahead and you tell me what I'm saying with no words. You tell me what I'm thinking. True. But the key was he talked about ambiguous situations gotcha. where you do not believe that the words are very reliable as an index. So that's the key qualifier there. And, you know, it's not a gigantic sample size, but I think it's an interesting barometer of the fact that anyone who depends on the words alone, I won't say dispense with the words. I've got a PhD in English. I like words. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've written eight books. I, I'd like to think words can do a few things for us. Oh, sure. Uh, on the other hand, if you've never been lied to in life, you know, congratulations. You're either really lucky or you're not paying attention. You know what's funny is that people are more forthright with words than you sometimes realize. And they don't even know they're saying it. I, I don't know. I know you've covered presidential debates before, but I can't help but think about a recent one with uh, Michael Bloomberg. Yes. Yeah. He, he got <laughs> he got sunk rather readily. <laughs> well, he he came out and talked about the congressman who helped take over and said, I gave one hundred million dollars. And then he said, I bought Gabe. And then he stopped. Yes, yes. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Now, have you found that, especially when you're looking at the cues, are you only looking at expressions? Because I know there's a um, a theory that you can see who will win a debate by turning your sound down and just watching them. 
and you can kind of see who's going to overall win. Yeah, no, I did something similar for Shark Tank episodes. Oh. Uh, I, just, I just looked to see whether or not the sharks are going to likely make a bid uh, for the uh, you know the entrepreneur's business, and uh, I was very accurate. What's uh, a determining factor? Because I've had uh, Scott Rouse on, who also does body language, and he was known as the uh, pitch guy. So he would go in, and as he put it, if you're pitching people and they're going, oh, yeah, oh, that's great, oh, yeah, you're never going to get it. He said, you're looking for the one who almost looks like they're constipated, almost looks like they're, he said, because they're thinking about it. He said, they're they're actually calculating in their mind, can I pay this to get that, or can I do this to get that? Does that match up, or did you find something different? No, I, I think it does match up. There's a one of these 23 expressions with facial coding is where the eyebrows lower and kind of pinch together mm-hmm. and you get a vertical crease between the eyebrows. So that shows someone's ruminating on something. They're kind of turning over those those numbers and scenarios and trying to imagine it works. They could also be narrowing the lips a bit. Uh, so, you know, anger is uh, sometimes a negative emotion. Obviously, you get into a violent barroom brawl. Sure. Uh, but anger can also be that you're concentrating. You want to make progress. You want to figure out what's that path to your ultimate goal. Uh, so a smile can be at the end of the equation. Yes, a smile can indicate you're open. Uh, you're embracing an offer, an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But it's also true that a smile, just like Anger has an upside and a downside. The downside to happiness is you're kind of being loose with the facts. You're just a happy camper. And, Social uh, lubricant. Yeah, and you're, and you're not so worried about things. I think a, a successful shark is going to be pretty careful to details, starting with their money. And so a big loopy smile probably means they're actually amused by you, but they're, <laughs> but they're laughing at you and the implausibility of you know, you know, your, your growth curve as opposed to, yeah, I'm going to jump in and, and team up with this person. Well, it's it's funny, too, because there have been studies that have shown that, well, I hate to say it, but liars are more likable. Uh, yeah, they're really good. They're, they can be smooth <laughs> talkers. They they don't hesitate. You know, they make it comfortable for us and just kind of, you know, bring us along stage by stage. I, I was fooled making a purchase not long ago, and she was very smooth. And I went <laughs> home and checked it out, and I, I'd pay too much money. Uh, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, but okay, being in the business you're in, do you kind of have to go, yeah, good job, you got me? Yeah, I, I did, but I, but I got her back in a small way at the end. She said, so how old do you think I am? And I think she was looking for a really young answer, and I said, 32, and she says, that's right, I'm 32. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's funny is when her reply is about to say, ah. oh. Yeah. <laughs> That is classic. All right. So while we're talking about that, what what are things that people get wrong? Now, the crossed arms is probably the most common example of, okay, that means they're closed off. And it's like, no, it doesn't mean that. It could be they're cold. It could be, well, I'm standing here for a long time. And my arms are tired and I can just kind of rest them across my chest. What are some other things that we just get wrong? I think we get wrong to the fact that there's no lying muscle in the face. I mean, I endlessly get asked this question. Surely there must be one expression that gives away the the fact that the person's lying. Uh, There isn't. 
if God meant it to be that simple, uh, we would all head to the plastic surgeon or the Botox center and have that expression wiped out of our repertoire. Uh, you have, <laughs> you, you, you have does to, help though, doesn't it? Well, it takes away the, the, yeah, the worry wrinkles. So it can make you, you know, a little more placid and a little more, you know, tip you to, a little more toward pure happiness instead. But the truth is Botox really works in just a couple of places. Mm-hmm. The face has 44 different sets of muscles, either side of the face, that can tie into facial expressions. Mm. So, so Botox, it doesn't even begin to cover uh, the waterfront in terms of how you show expressions. So this whole thing with, with, uh, lying, uh, some people will go to poker face. They'll try to not show anything on their face. Uh, Bernie Madoff will show, showed contempt on his face very often. He didn't hold with respect the people he was, you know, you know, flamoxing and taking the money from, uh, Richard Nixon was a bad liar. He showed fear. If you asked him the right question, the guy not only sweated like he famously did on the first Nixon-Kennedy debate, Mm -hmm. uh, but his mouth would pull wide in fear. I take Bill Clinton, the other hands, I want to be totally nonpartisan about this. Uh, He went to (laughs) anger. Uh, Anger is a good one and commonly used, right? Because it knocks people back on their heel a little bit, too. So they're, they're busy reacting that they may not be picking up what you're hiding. Is that a good analogy? It is. You know. How dare you doubt my veracity? So you kind of push back at them, maybe even really hard. Lance Armstrong would do the same sort of thing. Uh, You know, as someone once said to me, if you're going to tell a lie, tell a big lie. People will be amazed by your audacity. And I think that's one of the pathways that liars will take. Uh, So there are a lot of different ways in which you can potentially, uh, you know, have a pattern that might relate to your lies. But there is absolutely no you know, reliable way to pick up that someone is, is dissembling. It just, it just doesn't exist. Cool. Let's talk about another one that I think is commonly used, but I think has been maybe disproven or, or it needs to be worked harder before it's used. And that's the EAC model or I accessing cues. No, nothing about it. Go ahead and tell me. That's the whole, if I look up and to the left, that oh, means yes. that I am. Oh, yeah. I am actually remembering, but if I look down to the right and I could be getting it wrong, that means I'm creating that that whole thing. Yeah, no, I, I've been on the, the stage or spoken at conferences with several of those people. Mm-hmm. And one time I even happened to drive the guy back to the airport and I said, forgive me, but I'm a bit of a skeptic. I said, I, I got a PhD. I do research. I like to see a paper trail. I said, facial coding, I believe in because I've got everything from Leonardo da Vinci to Charles Darwin to a, a professor named Paul Ekman. I said, mm-hmm. tell me about the paper trail and I'll read the articles and, and maybe I can you know, get closer to accepting it. He had nothing. I said, here's my business card. Send me any links you got, articles. I said, I'll go to the library. I'll go to any university library. I'll, I'll dig. I'm it's, happy to dig. I, I got nothing from the guy. It's out of NLP, Neural yeah, Programming, yes, that, by the way, yes, if you ever want to dig in. Yeah, that's that's the term I was looking for, exactly. Um, was it Bandler? And I, I can't remember. Non, non-linguistic Programming, NLP, yes. Neural Neural, okay, sorry. I believe. But yeah, and it's a Bandler, and I forgot the other guy who created it. It's kind of out of the hypnosis world. It's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, when I first encountered facial coding, I mean, yeah, I was like, okay, is this really valid? Yeah. But I started digging in and uh, you find enough sources and Dr. Ekman, who I've now alluded to a couple of times, you mm-hmm. know, is a really thorough guy. I mean, no one's infallible. I, I can't sit here and say facial coding is always going to get you the absolute sure. ground truth of reality, uh, but it can get you closer. 
And uh, in this world, closer is maybe all you can hope for in some cases. Well, you do something with your software, it sounds like, that's kind of similar. Um, I've had a, um, a guest on in the past, and I refer to him a lot, Chase Hughes, who wrote um, the Ellipsis Manual, and he created something called the Behavioral Table of Elements. And what he does is he breaks down every expression, every movement, and he patterns them together into like a score. And this sounds similar in my mind to what you're talking about, where he won't take just one action. He'll take and he watches a video and slows it down and plays it back. And it'll be they did this expression followed by this item, followed by this item. If you add those together, that's a 13. Now, he's not saying that's a definitive lie. He's saying that that is something that should be explored. Sure. So with facial coding, one thing you're doing is you're looking for where are the peaks because an expression is kind of like a wave breaking on the shore. It mm-hmm. gathers, it has a peak, and it lets go. In fact, if the rhythm is unnatural, it, there's a good chance someone's trying to pull the expression on their face. So things you can look for is when an expression is lopsided. That's actually a pretty good indication that they're kind of forcing the smile, for instance. Uh, maybe the expression comes on too quickly. Politicians will do this. You know, they'll, <laughs> they'll flash the light bulb smile to try to hide the fear at the question. They have no idea how to answer. Uh, they'll also very expeditiously put away the smile. I call it the guillotine smile. It just like mm. drops off their face way too quickly. There's no natural fade to it. Like, now I'm going to put it back in my pocket. I deployed the smile. Now I'm done with it for the moment. Uh, there's also what I, what I call the Energizer bunny smile. It just goes on and on and on. Uh, that is not natural. If someone laughs at your joke, Eric, for more than three seconds, they're probably brown-nosing you. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm in trouble. Because no. <laughs> that's, 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 that's 30 frames per second. That's 90 frames. In a facial coder's life, that's actually a lot of time. And so that peak should be a peak. It should not be a plateau. You're not going out to Montana to look at a butte. This is something that should be much quicker. And so those are some of the things I look for. But yes, then I get into, okay, I saw this expression and this expression, and you can track it. And so let's take something that's fairly important, surprise. Uh, With surprise, some of the ways it shows, for instance, is the eyes go wider, the eyebrows lift. You are quite literally trying to take in more information. You're opening your window of vision. Mm. And so a surprise is almost like a pre-emotion. If emotions are brief, like three seconds, four seconds, kind of things at the most, well, surprise is super quick. Uh, Mm. In most instances, surprise is going to be certainly less than a second. It might be one-fourth of a second. That's how long it happens. Because surprise can lead either to a positive verdict, a negative verdict, or an ambiguous verdict. So a positive verdict is, ah, new car for Christmas. Uh, Negative verdict, new car, accident on the way home from work. Uh, Both of them are possible, but it's really in the sequence what comes after that. You know, did they start to feel some anger? Was there contempt? Was there happiness? You know, what's the combination? And then is there an overlying pattern? Because some of these expressions go to just one emotion, but Mm -hmm. a number of other ones go to two or more emotions. So is there some commonalities? There's something that maybe stands out as kind of like the, the emotion of the moment, but there's maybe a subtext, a second emotion that plays into it. So, for instance, maybe your reaction is contempt. You know, I don't res- mm-hmm. trust you. I don't respect you. But maybe the underlying emotion is a little bit of sadness because maybe I thought you were someone who was going to mm. be a good colleague. And suddenly now I am disappointed in you. So I not only disrespect you, but I'm also disappointed because I'd hoped for a better outcome. 
So that's where some of the richness starts to come into the interpretation. You know, it's not cookie cutter like, ah, oh, there's one expression and this person has it for all time. You know, that 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 is really once you get into facial coding and try to utilize the tool, that, that's not a satisfying way uh, to, to use the tool at all. Well, surprise is a, a very important element in comedy. It is. Which I think is – because a joke in of itself is you're expecting one outcome and are hit from the side with a different outcome. And that surprise then leads into the reaction of, of the laughter. Yeah, no, it's, it's an absolute staple. And it can be on a comedy. It can also be on a cop show, quite honestly, because you're looking for twists in the plot. Mm. In daily life, so there's these seven emotions that in my book – Famous Faces decoded. I have 173 celebrities, and surprise is about 8 to 10% of their emoting. When I look at TV shows, particularly comedies, uh, the amount of emoting per character, if I just take an episode or two and go through them, is about 25%. Sometimes it's as much as 35%. So it is completely uh, unnatural and beyond how we typically live our lives. But you're looking for the joke and the next joke and the you know the the, the sleight of hand plot development and so on and right. so forth. It's kind of like crash car dummies, and yeah, you know, that's what's happening on the screen for us. What's well, funny? I I had a uh, Mark Bowden on, and he is a another body language expert. He's been rated by Global Gurus, and we had talked about it on a um, while we're being filmed here. What he recommends is you're looking up at a a post-it next to the camera. So I'm actually looking in your eyes right now, which means I'm looking in the camera. But as he put it, there's a lot of mechanisms that go into place to make something more real by being fake, which is a really (laughs) contrary thing, but it is sort of true. It's like, if I look into the camera directly, I seem like I am more intimately looking in your eyes, even though now I can't see your image at all. You're just under me and I'm essentially blinded to you. But I seem more authentic by being inauthentic. Well, yes, and I, I'm always <laughs> and I'm always looking for that. I'll, I'll give you a, two quick stories. So the evening of the Iowa caucuses in 2008, I, I was both in the room and I predicted that Huckabee was going to win. And then oh. I went to where Obama was, and Obama was really careful. He has this great true smile. At least he did until he became president and had to deal with everything. <laughs> but he had this great true smile, but he really was careful not to overuse it. He tried to keep it as natural as possible. Hmm. Uh, and I thought that was interesting. Another thing was I did some work for Bayer at one point looking at TV commercials. And of course, they don't have overly smooth professional actors. They're calling in some actors, but they're not A-list. Right. And what, what we found when they correlated to sales was that when I looked at the quality of the acting, the more authentic it was and the more it fit the script as to what was being said and what was supposed to be going on as you move from problem to solution as the format in the commercial, the more Bayer made money. And the less really? authentic it was, the less they made money. Because if you don't believe the acting on some subliminal level, you probably don't believe in the product either. So uh, you're it, saying it's it, worth paying for that top la- top line talent. It is, and it's also worth doing more than one take if need be, and it's worthwhile to get rid of somebody who just can't seem to get there. Uh, many years ago, I was speaking in Estonia, and I finished the speech, and the first question off the floor, someone says, ah, you're an American. You smile all the time. Isn't it fake? <laughs> and I said, uh, can you unpack the question for me? They said, well, you have all your cheesy smiles on TV, all your advertising. 
And I said, well, I'm not responsible for that, nor am I that person. I actually happen to enjoy what I do for a living. Uh, there is something called the American dream. Mm-hmm. And uh, since you were historically stuck between Hitler and Stalin, if you're not quite <laughs> as happy, I'll, I'll forgive you for it. <laughs> did they at least laugh? They did. There was a gasp in the audience, though, because they probably didn't think an American might actually know history, but I did. Well, it is interesting, though, because on a television or something, you're projecting. I mean, you are trying to sell something. Usually a doer presentation is not going to lead into much profit. Yeah, no, it's true. But you also just want to be animated. So it is the smile and people have to make their own calculation. I mean, the the worst acting by far in any commercial is is the people playing doctors in pharmaceutical ads. Sure. I mean, those are just atrocious beyond belief. I mean, I, I've told them to deep six those a long time ago. Uh, but yeah, you're looking for the authenticity of the smile, but you're also looking to see if they emote much. If you're talking about the problem, you should feel the problem. Mm, true. You know, so that there's a contrast between the two. To have the Energizer Bunny smile go for an entire 30 seconds is what I call being off emotion rather than being on emotion. You want to be on message and you want to be on emotion. Feeling points are just as important as talking points. I mean, they they really are. And right. if you are animated, you show you care. You should have some varieties. You have some nuance to you. Uh, otherwise, my God, you're just this this plastic doll that's <laughs> been put out before us. You know, I, this is probably completely way off base, but I had a conversation recently with my wife. And there are romantic movies. And yes, okay, I watch them with my wife. And I actually enjoy them, too, I confess. But... They will have a character, and this is where I'm going with it, especially the male, where they will just be a real jerk. I mean, a deep, complete jerk. And I have trouble following the redemption arc. Is there a point where it could be too far? Where somebody like, and I'll use, um, God, I forgot the actor's name. He played Michael Scott in The Office, Steve Carell. Oh, yeah. He's he's wonderful. I love watching The Office, by the way. Exactly. Well, he's a jerk, but there's just a certain childlike quality to him to where you never feel like you hate the guy. You just you kind of still like him no matter how bad or how dumb or how terrible his statement is. Do you feel that is a factor? And I'm asking you this because like in commercials or whatever, you know, if you express it too strongly or you're too far down a path, then you can't turn the other way. Does that make sense? Well, you know, his character is endlessly trying to get himself out of predicaments that he often created himself. Sure. So so there is this frantic energy to him, and it's almost like he's emotionally ADD Mm -hmm. because he is pirouetting from one emotion and one circumstance to the another. When you're talking about these bad guys, they're often rather sullen, and they Mm -hmm. don't express a lot, and they're pretty monolithic. You know, anger is probably the the go-to emotion that they're going to show, maybe a contempt expression. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's there's nothing there that makes us root for them, whereas in the office, despite all their their downsides and foibles, yeah, there's there's some sort of impish charm that that brings us along. And it's not necessarily that there's too much smiling. It's just, I I think it's just the, the bubbling variety. I mean, we all like variety. In life, it's one of the reasons we're watching TV. After all, at the end of the day, uh, we're looking for something different. Actually, another good one might be uh, James Gandolfini as Tony Soprano. Yeah, I, I don't know that I've watched okay. it, but I, I don't know as well. I, I uh, just watched The Office last night, a couple of episodes, for instance. <laughs> so, 
that definitely holds up. But, okay. Back to the model of, of reading people. Joe Navarro, I think, has described something that just makes so much sense to me, and it's very simple. But sometimes a simple thing is very profound. And he said it's a matter of, of finding comfort and discomfort, that all of body language is you find a baseline of comfort, and wherever they're showing discomfort is what you're seeking. Well, in, in his line of work, that would make more sense because he's looking for the disparities, something that gives away something they're not willing to offer up. He's basically playing Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. What I'm tending to do in my work uh, is, whether it's politics or market research or whatever the case may be, or just enjoying watching something that's a cultural artifact, is I'm really interested in two things. One is, what's the expression in the moment? Is there some interesting revealing moment uh, i'll give you an example so before the surge i'm watching two generals testify about the iraq war to congress mm -hmm. and they're saying it's going well and they actually look pretty fearful and pretty sad and i say to myself oh shit this is a lot worse than we're learning about and then you know over time it comes out so i'm interested in those revealing moments i think there are those kind of revelatory opportunities the other thing I'm really interested in, the ultimate pager, is who is somebody over time? Do they indeed have a bit of a baseline, a default, a what I call a signature expression that reveals something about them? So in another book that I did not too long ago called Two Cheers for Democracy, I actually went through for every single president. Uh, it was a little difficult in the case of George Washington and really older presidents. Uh, I didn't have photographs. Uh, mm -hmm. I had some paintings. I had some sculpture. I had medallions. I had to work with whatever I could find. It got a lot easier. I divided into three different eras, three different tranches, based basically on how the technology was evolving. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I got a camera, but the camera's slow. Now I got a modern camera and so forth. And then I correlated what I picked up from them, what the patterns were for their emoting, to what presidential scholars had said about their greatness. How did they rank as one of the great presidents or one of the weaker presidents? And mm. what I found over time was that sadness was the most reliable indicator of relative failure in the White House. So that That's, would imply that Lincoln failed. Well, <laughs> sorry to say, but it immediately goes to mind. I can't think of anyone oh, oh, more oh, profoundly sad. Oh, absolutely. But the interesting thing about Lincoln is one, he was the outlier among all the presidents <laughs> who were most predominantly given to sadness because there's never anything that's you know utterly precise or has no exceptions to the rule. Mm -hmm. But the other thing with Lincoln was that his secondary most standout emotion was a kind of a, a lower grade of happiness because Lincoln also had a good ability to, you know, be amused at himself, be amused at the foibles of others, to make the little wry joke. He mm -hmm. could find some levity and happiness. I said earlier, you know, one of the downsides of happiness is that it makes you sloppy with the details. The upside of happiness can be that it gives you uh, more freedom of thought. There are good studies to indicate that a happier person will brainstorm superior solutions and more quickly. And I would say one of the attributes of Lincoln, despite you know the circumstances he found himself in, he had a very difficult marriage. Uh, you know, one of his children died while he was in the White House. I mean, there is absolute sadness. I mean, I don't think a man like Lincoln couldn't have felt sadness and then produced you know the Gettysburg Address. I mean, that is a really somber but incredible piece of writing. Uh, right. But I think the happiness was some levity. When I looked at the other presidents 
who were characterized by sadness mm -hmm. uh, tend to be emotions like disgust and contempt. Uh, anger were their secondary emotion. So there was not something to offset the sadness. Sadness and happiness is like the front and the back side of the moon. And I, and I think those qualities helped Lincoln. And sadness was, if you want to talk about being on emotion, sadness really fit the Civil War. I mean, what a horrible mm. spectacle that was. Who um, who was it that was known as a happy warrior? Uh, actually, uh, Hubert Humphrey from my home state of Minnesota was known as the happy warrior. Okay. Okay. Well, he didn't quite make it in. What? Well, what in, 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 in 1968, you'd have to be crazy to be happy. That, that was a difficult <laughs> year for the country. So uh, Nixon, you know, might have arguably been lucky. And Nixon was one of the presidents who was given to sadness. Who surprised you? When you were when you're doing this research, I feel like things have to surprise you. Like you sure. one thing and then you discover something else. Uh, I'll give you a couple of things. One uh, from politics and one from culture. Fear and Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan indexed really high on fear. And when I thought about Ronald Reagan, I thought about him being smiling and comfortable in his own skin. I thought mm -hmm. of him as being angry and purposeful, like tear down that wall, Gorbachev. That sort of stuff. But when I looked at him, and I'm not saying those emotions aren't there, right. but when I put him relative to the other presidents, what really stood out was his degree of fear. And then I went back and I started reading the autobiographical information and the biographical information, and it made a lot more sense. His dad was an alcoholic. The family mm -hmm. moved repeatedly when he was a boy. Uh, he always had to cover up, like, why he didn't want friends to come to the house and things like that. Uh, in adulthood, you know, he was not a very successful actor. Jane Wyman dumped him and, mm -hmm. you know, and moved on. Uh, as a president, you know, was he always in command of the facts? He might not have been, but it certainly became more difficult, you know, once his, you know, you know, diminished mental abilities started to come into play. I don't remember the name of his condition offhand. I want to say dementia, uh, but whatever it was that he was mm. suffering from, you know, was starting to loom over him uh, later in his presidency. So he was, and I think it's actually, it, it makes sense based on all those details and people saying that it was, despite all the sunniness, he was really hard to get close to. His son complained that he never once had an intimate conversation with his father ever. And more than a few people said that. I hate to sidetrack, but you mentioned, um, well, dementia. I'm not going to say it is, but I do, from what I've seen, and I don't want to read any more into it, but I feel like there's something wrong with Biden. Uh, Biden is, uh, yeah, he feels like, to me, like he's on, uh, you know, a piece of soap. Uh, he, he is truly not all there. The energy level is really low. Uh, I do a blog series called Faces of the Week. Mm -hmm. And at one point after one of the debates, I think just before Iowa, I, I titled it Biden sinks beneath the waves. Okay, I mean, I, I'm not, and people are laughing. I don't think it's funny. I'm genuinely concerned when I look and the snapping at voters, that anger sometimes is a sign of uh, cognitive issues. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I'm not laughing at it either. I mean, maybe there's a little ironic humor sure. in the title, but the stakes are big. I mean, I, I'm a patriot. I, I believe the country should have the best president it could possibly have at all times. Uh, I have a very famous uh, cousin named Clint Hill. He's the one who tried to save Kennedy in Dallas in 1963. He was the Secret Service agent who jumped to the back of the limo and tried to get to the president. 
Oh, wow. uh, and I've, I've met with him several times. And quite honestly, Clint was a facial coder. He said, I couldn't possibly, you know, take in all the things going on in the audience. What I looked for was anger because mm. anger is an emotion essentially means I'm going to hit or hit out. He said, I was looking for someone with a strong anger expression. If I could, the problem that day was, you know, based on the window. Yeah, they're in a window up above. You know, he had no chance. He he had had something much more on the level. So, no, I I do think there's something uh, a little bit missing about Biden and presuming he gets the nomination. Uh, I mean, not since 1944 has it been so important as to who the vice presidential choice might be. Uh, my, my uh, grandfather out in North Dakota was a lifelong Republican, but he voted for, for uh, FDR for getting us out of the Great Depression. But he once said to me in a moment of uh, aside, he said, yeah, the Democrats fooled us into voting for a dead man in 1944. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit of truth to that. You know, FDR the same thing was- with Wilson, though. He wasn't elected, but if I recall, there's some very serious speculation that his wife ran the country for oh, at least I- the last bit. Oh, no, there's no question about it. When he went around and tried to talk the country into agreeing to the League of Nations, he wore himself out and, you know, had a, I believe it was a stroke. And yeah, his wife, Edith, was essentially the president for the last part of his uh, his time in office. Okay, so. Uh, and no. Someone else who also surprised me, going a different direction, mm-hmm. uh, speaking of uh, celebrities, uh, Robert Redford. Uh, I thought of Robert Redford as just this handsome dude, uh, fairly placid. And when I started looking at Redford, uh, it's not that he's intensely angry, but he's angry. Uh, he didn't like the Hollywood system. It's why he created Sundance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he never wanted to just be a pretty face. He, he wanted to be something more than that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of a low-grade, more muted anger. Mm-hmm. But it really stood out for him. And that really caught me by surprise. Uh, same thing I'd say with George Harrison. Uh, I happen to be a lifelong lover of the Beatles. I always thought of George as, you know, the quiet Beatle, the guy who mm-hmm. wrote, you know, um, you know, My Sweet Lord and, you know, all these little gentle tunes. You know, he really seemed like a gentle soul. Mm-hmm. But I started looking at his expressions and George was angry. And maybe he was angry because he uh, you know, didn't get as many songs cut on the album. Right. But uh, when I started doing the background reading, uh, Ringo Starr said, yes, we go into the studio. And he said, I never knew which George I was going to get, because some days George could be a rather pleasant fellow. And other days, George would be really, you know, ornery. And he said, I, I had to watch out for the guy. You know, it's funny. I, I feel like the Beatles are a weird case. Like, number one, poor Ringo. I mean, how many times have I heard how awful of what was the old joke? Um, the what was it uh, the best drummer in the Beatles wasn't Ringo or something like that? Yeah, no, he gets picked on a fair amount. And, you know, and Paul McCartney was such a good musician that arguably he was the best drummer and the best lead guitarist in the group as mm-hmm. well as doing everything else. But uh, Ringo was charming. And, uh, you know, the Beatles would not be the Beatles without Ringo. Yeah, I kind of feel like um, sort of like John Entwistle in The Who was the glue between Pete Townsend and Keith Moon. Because they were both so incendiary, his skill of holding down the bottom just kind of held them together. Yeah, they needed something. When you got Keith Moon on the guitars, <laughs> ready to blow up the world, you need you need something to have some glue there. Well, um, any other celebrities, presidents, or anything else that just really jumped out at you as being um, completely against character? Um, I was actually surprised with Zuckerberg. Uh, I 
just thought he'd be a nerd and he wouldn't show a whole lot of emotion necessarily. Uh, he's a joy bird. He's someone who indexes really high on when the muscle around the eye relaxes and you get the twinkle of the eye. Really? And yes, I, I did not he was expect kind of spectrum me to be honest. Well, so did I. And I'm not saying that's not there, but again, I'm looking at the same thing is true with the celebrities. I got 173 of them across four different eras. So I'm looking for where are the expressions where they really stand out. So when I take on happiness, I actually look at four different levels of happiness. So I'm not saying he's a happy camper overall mm-hmm. because I have other levels. I have pleasure where the, the, the cheeks lift very broadly, uh, a satisfaction expression where it's a more muted happiness, and then kind of the Filene's bargain basement of happiness, which I call acceptance. It's the begrudging smile where maybe one side of the mouth briefly flickers with the whisper of a smile. But what Zuckerberg does have is when he's really happy, and of course, he's made a lot of money. He's controlled his own destiny. Uh, when he's really happy, he goes to this joy bird expression. And that's very different, for instance, uh, from Jeff Bezos, whose signature expression is surprise. Bezos is all about seizing, in my opinion, seizing opportunities. His eyes go wide. He is engaged in reconnaissance a lot. You know, what's the situation? What should I do? What should I do with something? So they're both tech giants. Mm -hmm. I never would have thought about either one of them as being particularly emotive beings. I could not have readily identified before the study that there would be, that these would be their signature expressions. The ones that most stood out where they indexed most highly versus the other celebrities I looked at. Well, okay. I'm going to go through a couple more. I hope you look because when you talk about tech giants, I can't help but go to Steve Jobs. Anger. Okay. I thought there was a rage within him. Oh, absolutely. I was speaking at a conference not long ago, and then the guy after me got up, and he starts in, and he shows a photograph of Steve Jobs, and he's talking about all the the sweetness of Steve Jobs' creations, uh, you know, in terms of the ease of using the iPhone and everything else, and that's fine. I mean, they are wonderful products, arguably, Mm -hmm. but the guy is showing this photograph really large on the screen, and he says, so what what, what do you notice about Steve Jobs? And I said, anger. And he said, where do you see anger? I said, well, look at how firmly pressed together the lips are. I said, in fact, there's a bulge beneath the lower lip, right in the middle beneath the lower lip. I said, that's a really reliable sign of anger. So are when the eyes narrow and you get a taut lower eyelid. I said, Mm. that's also a really reliable sign of anger. I said, that's Steve Jobs. That's the guy you're showing me. And this person just didn't want to accept it. (laughs) I mean, but if you start reading about Steve Jobs and how he treated other people, Uh, the fact that he would take a handicapped parking spot and just park there and jump out and, you know, screw you, this is where I'm going to park. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it fits very much. I, I can't say that one surprised me especially, but I hadn't really zeroed in on him that much until I did the study. And then I went, boom, yeah, anger, absolutely. How about Elon Musk? I don't remember offhand, but I'm going to say that I think there's some disgust there. Uh, I'd have to mm-hmm. look it up. Uh, but it, it wasn't, again, I didn't have a, a reading of him going in, uh, but it, whatever it was, it wasn't what I remembered or what I expected to the extent I expected something. Um, there's a lot of surprises, you know, it's, you know, once you start studying something, you know, you, you pick up things that, uh, casually you might just go with the press releases or the, the image or something. Would it be disgust um, or contempt? I'm just curious because there's a. I feel like some of his actions are uh, 
like he's um, amused by everyone who's below him a little. Well, if you don't mind, I've just grabbed my uh, book because I can't possibly remember. Oh, I understand ev- that. Everybody. And the funny thing is I also asked people in a survey to say what they thought for a celebrity. And they were mm. wildly off, like only 35% accurate. Oh, that's me. So <laughs> I'm the bottom end of the Moravian. So, so for Elon Musk, the, the, what the people thought was happiness. In fact, they thought it was going to be really strong happiness. Mm-hmm. And his number one highest thing, I was correct, it's disgust followed by mm. contempt. Okay, so, why is it that far off? You know, and, and they're both aversive emotions. The, <laughs> the difference is disgust is the upper lip flares, the nose wrinkles. It's mm-hmm. really a, a really kind of a gut level reaction. Uh, I see it a lot in, in star athletes. They, they can't mm-hmm. stand mediocrity. It's well, almost, that makes sense. It, it almost as if it repulses them. Contempt, on the other hand, is what you were going to. It, it's more attitudinal in nature. You know, it could right. be, uh, I don't trust you. I don't respect you. Uh, I'm superior to you. I've heard that contempt is to people and disgust is to things. Uh, that can often be true. I mean, the way that disgust serves us from an evolutionary point of view is our ancestors would have said, uh, this is a bad watering hole. You know, the water's fetid. I'm going to get poisoned. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to die from this. Right. Uh, we don't like the taste of an apple and so on. Contempt to me is an odd one because just as surprise is almost like a pre-emotion, mm-hmm. the other emotion that doesn't quite fit in is contempt, which is really almost a cognitive emotion, which is a contradiction in terms. But I really think it's it's attitudinal in nature, and it builds up over time, often in relationships. It, it's why at the Love Lab at the University of Washington, Seattle, mm-hmm. they use facial coding and marriage counseling with 15 minutes of videotape, a 90% accuracy rate as to whether or not the couple would stay married and contempt was the most reliable indicator that it would fail. I read, uh, I think that same study though said it was contempt with men and disgust with women. Uh, it could be, um, like women who showed disgust, their relationship was in serious trouble and men who showed contempt, it was over something like that. Well, if it's true, um, disgust would be interesting because women are much more sensitive to smells. For instance, mm-hmm. if you look at a study, you take a hundred smells, the women will have a more acute sense of smell for like 97 of them. Yeah, I mean, they I just know. beat I'm guys. Married. Yeah. So <laughs> wh- why are they a better cook in many cases? That could be a reason. Do they like it? If your dirty t-shirts in the corner of the bedroom and you haven't picked it up for four days and put it in the clothes hamper. Yeah, so if women feel disgust, it could be at times with the habits of the guys in their household. It's just possible. But overall, contempt makes a lot of sense because if you no longer respect the other party, you also don't put any credence in what they're saying. I mean, what happens in a presidential debate? The first thing you try to do is undercut the authority of the other person. Sure. Try to say they're they're not trustworthy. You shouldn't listen to them. Because once you've defanged them, Mm -hmm. you're kind of home safe as a candidate. Um, and I think it's a really hard thing to recover from, uh, you know, once it goes down. I mean, just today in a book I was reading over lunchtime, they said essentially George Bush's presidency was over after Katrina. Mm-hmm. He, he couldn't come back from it. Well, well, Trump, um, and I know you're not a fan, you did a whole thing on him, but he handled that masterfully throughout the debates. And he undercut everybody in just one phrase or another, low energy Jeb. He took a quality of Jeb Bush of being very contemplative, serious and sober and thoughtful, and he turned it into 
if you will, a description that he couldn't escape because once that label was planted on him, however he tried to get out of it, either he would be overreacting, which means he stepped into it, or he would be still low energy and he stepped into it. So wh- however you feel about Trump, he's a master at um, laying paint on other people. No, he absolutely is. And it's true that I, you know, I don't have a high regard for his character or his competency mm-hmm. in office. On the other hand, I just finished reading a book called An Audience of One, uh, widely regarded as an excellent book on Trump. Mm-hmm. And it's written by the television critic at the New York Times. And Trump is a you know, creature of watching TV. He, he obviously was on TV. He really sure. understands the medium. Uh, and yes, he's he's very good at the the put downs and the comebacks. Uh, he knows how to phrase things in a way that is memorable, that's punchy, that has, especially if you're on his side, an element of humor to it. And he was brilliant regarding Jeb Bush. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, he announced his presidency the very day after Jeb Bush announced his. Mm-hmm. The whole point was to be the counterpoint to Jeb Bush, and yeah. and he was very fortunate in Hillary Clinton as a candidate. I mean, just as, you know, uh, Nixon was lucky that 1968 was a year where his kind of glowering presence was perfect for the time when the whole country was falling apart. And Hubert Humphrey's happiness looked like, aren't you paying attention, guy? Don't you see what's going on here? Uh, at the same time, I think that Trump's ability to counterpunch uh, and take it to Hillary Clinton, who had a massive problem with fake smiles. I mean, I actually yeah. named I actually named the guillotine smile after watching Hillary Clinton, you know, on the stump because she did it all the time. She would smile broadly, not so genuinely, and then put it away. So I, I thought Trump had a lot of things going for him as a campaigner, uh, actually. But I'd say as a campaigner versus being in the White House, uh, from my point of view, can be different skill sets at times. Well, well sure, sure. But it's one of those that even a broken clock is, you know, right twice a day. Yeah. No, no, but he he has some skills and he does have amazing amount of energy. You have to give it to to him for that. I mean, he was the absolute opposite of Jeb Bush, who just slowly slid from being in the middle of the debate stage further and further to the side. <laughs> it was so it was so humiliating. It was amazing. And I and um the other one that he did that really stands out on him, I don't know if you've ever read Scott Adams or know of him, but oh, he yes. pointed it out. But um when Megan Kelly went after him with essentially a nuclear bomb. I mean, just you've said this and this and this about women. I mean, any candidate I've ever seen would be stammering and trying to find their way out of it. But he just looked up and goes, only Rosie O'Donnell and the whole audience just started laughing. And that was scarily masterful. It was. Well, Roy Cohn trained him to say, you know, if they punch, punch back twice as hard. Mm. And uh, he took that to heart. He's applied it his whole adult career. Uh, but he's always, I mean, as the, the book I just alluded to said, well, you know, we, we talk about breaking news. Well, the breaking news is anything off the lips of Donald Trump, whether it's a tweet or something he actually says. I mean, he just keeps rolling and rolling and nothing seems to set him back, even when it could and should, perhaps. Yeah. Well, it's... um. I'm going to leave it on one point, but I think it's probably very true. And that is that Trump's fan base take him seriously, but not literally. And his opposition takes him literally, but not seriously. Yeah. And that's their fault not to take him seriously for one thing. 
Uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's a real presidency and it has real ramifications. And they they underestimated him. I would confess I did as well initially. And then I watched something, uh, a documentary that he'd been toying with running for president for far longer than I imagined. In fact, had sat down with Richard Nixon after a fundraiser after a fundraiser in Houston and basically, you know, buttonholed him with questions about what it took to get to the White House. The moment I read that, I said, no, no, this is not a Ross Perot where I'm going to disappear in the middle of the campaign for a while and be all quirky. <laughs> this guy, he'll run it in a different way, but he, he he's, he's coming. He's coming at it. He, he means to try to win. All right. Well, now to wrap things up, we've been talking a lot, I feel, about your book and Famous Faces Decoded. Is that pretty much everything we were talking about has been covered in that book, right? It is that book in a book called Two Cheers for Democracy. Mm, two Cheers. Um, so I, I would say it's both of those books. Okay. Well, I definitely want to recommend so people can go get those books because, you know, we're talking about all this stuff and I know that's only scratching the surface. I think you told me earlier before we started 170 some odd pages of pictures just literally showing how the expressions break down. Yes, I have little pop quizzes. I, I One of my fun things I do is I go through and I look at people in marriages or siblings and how they emote differently. Uh, so I tried to bring as much as I could uh, from rock stars to Hollywood to politicians to business people, media moguls, you know, any, anything that I just said, I, I'm too intrigued not to go to that person. Okay. And I wanted to close out. You had mentioned that you well, if we ever get to get together in person, uh, we'll be running what you called our EQ retreats. Now, what are those? Yeah, EQ, obviously emotional intelligence. I mean, I have a really unique database. I've done work for more than half the world's top 100 business to consumer companies. I've done all sorts of other studies, just kind of a curious guy, and sometimes I can't resist. So I'm, I winter in Palm Springs area. I'm going to do starting probably next uh, you know, Q1 of 2021. I'm going to start doing these one-day uh, business retreats, but they're not all business. Some of them will be lessons I've learned uh, from facial coding and about emotions regarding advertising and sales and how to manage people and hire people and be a good leader. But I'm also going to do it for artists. I have, for instance, another book called First Blush, People's Intuitive Reactions to Famous Art and how people respond to artwork. So I'm going to do it for them. It could be people in, in marriages or how to raise their kids. I mean, there are so many ways in which emotions apply. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is someone said, there are only two currencies in life, Dan, dollars and emotions. Mm. And uh, I've sometimes worked them together, but I'm just interested in emotions, period. H human nature is fascinating. It's frustrating and it's fascinating both at the same time. Uh, there's, there's a comment by... Sarin Kierkegaard, the famous Danish philosopher, he said, out of the twisted timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. So I have spent the last 20 years kind of looking for the warp in the woods and the knots uh, just because, hey, it's interesting stuff. Well, very cool. And I, w I am doing something that's a live stream where I bring on guests who've been on the show and open things up to where the audience can ask questions in the chat. And I was wondering if it's possible we could maybe bring you back and maybe you could kind of demonstrate your tool and we could go over a couple pictures or, or something and you could, you know, show us this is what I'm seeing here and this is how it work. And I, you know, fast forward, zoom in, all that stuff. Is that possible? We can bring you back. 
Oh, absolutely. I would be delighted to do that. It can be from photographs, from video, whatever you want to do. Um, yeah, I love to apply my trade. I've done it day in, day out for years. Oh, fantastic. And people can find you at sensorylogic.com, right? That is my company's website. I also have a personal one called danhill.sensorylogic.com. Either one will work. And there is my blog called Faces of the Week. Well, fantastic. And Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Brett Allen, and I am the host of the Open Mic Podcast, where no topic is off limits. Here at the Open Mic, we talk to many different people. We talk to celebrities, entrepreneurs, psychics, celebrities, and everything in between. I would like to encourage you to listen and subscribe. You can learn more about the show at theopenmicpodcast.net. Again, thank you so much. Until next time, cheers and be well. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in LA and you're an actor, there's no worse place. To be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's really famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session.